thank you for tuning into Holistic Finance, where we promote financial balance and financial health. Our mission is to simplify your finances so you can focus on your practice and enjoy life. Now, here are your hosts, Ryan Burklow and Alex Collins. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Holistic Finance. I'm your host, Ryan Burklow. Uh, for those of you who are new, this podcast is all about helping naturopaths, helping you build your practice. Uh, from a, from a growth standpoint, from a financial standpoint. And today, we're also going to be talking about from a liability and a legal standpoint. Today, I've got uh, a new guest, Michael Safran. He is a business attorney who specializes in working with medical professionals and making sure that from a legal standpoint and a liability standpoint, your practice is protected as, it, as best as it possibly can be. So with that being said, Michael, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. And I'm sure our listeners are also going to appreciate it because I think a lot of the questions and and conversations that we'll have today, these are questions that I get all the time from from new medical professionals. So this will be very valuable for them. Before we dive into our conversation, why don't you give it a little bit uh, bit about your background, everyone? So um, thanks for having me on. So my background uh, is I attended the University of Florida and got my undergraduate degree in business and then followed that up with a master's degree in business, again, at the University of Florida, go Gators. Um, after uh, after uh, being in, in business for about 10 years, I worked in finance and secured lending and did some sales. I really found uh, that I really wanted to uh, uh, practice law and had a calling towards the law. So I attended Seattle University uh, School of Law and graduated in 2013. And I began my path doing creditor representation. And along the way, I worked at a number of different firms and I, I gathered a number of, of great experiences, both in transaction and litigation. And uh, I finally, in October of 2019, joined uh, my current practice where I'm partners with uh, Jenny Ling here at the law offices of Jenny Ling. Gotcha. So when, you know, you gave a little bit of background around why you went into law, was that out of the blue for you or how did that come about uh, in terms of, you know, when you went to college and you got your degree from Florida, how was that for you? Sure. I, um, you know, I, I had some family that also practice in, in law and I initially came out of school with a real affinity for business. And I think I still keep that affinity for business and that kind of bottom line approach in terms of dollars and cents and what's practical in, in terms of, you know, what is this going to, you know, what's going to be the outcome and what's that cost, the cost benefit analysis, if you will, for outcomes. Um, but uh, I just found that after uh, uh, working in sales and in, in finance that um, I don't feel like I was uh, reaching maybe uh, the true um, the true potential that I had and the true ability to serve people in a way that I wanted to. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, for for the listeners, you know, Mike and I, Michael and I met uh, through his wife, actually, Jenny. Um, she was on the show around estate planning. And as we started discussing and, and talking about, you know, what's on our mind, I got to learn more about Michael's practice inside of inside of the firm and specifically around, you know, medical professionals and how the legal side of things, you know, just like the finance side of things, it, it's just a bunch of jargon almost to the to the to the commoner, if you will. And let's just face it, most of us 
while we want to be protected, we don't want to be the experts in it because unless you love it, uh, you're just never going to understand it. And after that conversation around his experience and professional um, expertise in that, I was like, you know what, we should have Michael on the show because one of the top questions we always get, especially for, for graduating NDs or NDs about to start their practice is, hey, what type of entity should we choose? And, you know, this is, you know, you've heard the the initials of PLLC, LLC, S Corp, C Corp, like all that starts to go through. Michael, can, can you speak into a little bit about the difference between them kind of on a high level? Certainly. Well, I appreciate the opportunity also to speak about this because I agree this becomes a source of confusion for many people. And when you're coming out of school and you're looking to start your practice, um, many questions uh, permeate as to how to set this up. And you may have had some advice or heard something or read something on the Internet or know someone who's who's doing it a, a particular way. And should you copy them? I think ultimately this is, you know, the ultimate decision is going to need to be um, personalized and tailored to your specific circumstances but here's some high level information so that'll at least start you on the path and you can start thinking about these things um and, and these considerations as to how do you want to form an entity and and if you should you know, what sort of uh entity you should select so the first thing i like to tell people and, and and have people think about as a as an exercise is you know do you want to have a separate entity that's going to protect your personal assets I think that's really the first the first key level question, because if you're not looking to protect your personal assets, if you say, look, I drive a, a 1993 uh, Honda with uh, 375,000 miles on it, I lease a, a bedroom in uh, my friend's apartment and uh, I've got $100,000 worth of debt, potentially you're not you don't have a lot of personal assets to protect at that time. But if you do come out with some assets and you do have some money, the, the starting an entity that's considered a separate business structure and a separate entity from yourself might be the best path forward. And uh, to that end, if you uh, don't set up a specific entity, then the default here in Washington is that you are either a sole proprietor if you're uh, in business, engaging in business by yourself, or if you're engaging in business with another person that's not your spouse, then you're a partnership. And those are the default positions that, that the courts will state that you're taking if you don't do more and actually go through the process of setting up a actual entity. Now, once if you decided that you want to set up an actual entity, then there's really two main types of entities that um, that, that practitioners look at. The first is the LLC and the second is the corporation. Now the LLC is short for the limited liability company. And um, here in Washington, uh, we certainly think that it offers a lot of flexibility um, and it offers uh, practitioners a lot of um, optionality in, in selecting the particulars uh, in terms of taxability, in terms of reporting structure, and in terms of uh, uh, management structure. We think it, it really does offer a lot of optionality and flexibility. And so it, it, in many cases, is a good choice. But again, each situation is individual, and, and each person is going to have to um, select the right structure based on their individual and, and, and personal needs. 
Yeah, we should have started the podcast off with a big like disclosure. <laughs> this is not individual. Make sure you speak with. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. And and I'll certainly uh, we'll certainly all give a big disclaimer at the end that you know I'm not giving individualized legal advice yep. and. Uh, you know, this doesn't, you know, listening to the podcast doesn't formulate an attorney-client relationship. I'm sure you give the same sort of disclaimer <laughs> when you do yep. it as well. So, um, yeah, of course, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure we give those disclaimers again uh, clearly and, and, and perhaps um, more intelligibly. But, yeah, so that's I think that's the first step is just figuring out what kind of structure do you have. And I think the big dividing line for people should be the question of, am I looking to shield and differentiate my personal assets from that of the business. And if you're not, then sole proprietors and partnerships are perfectly acceptable. There certainly are a number of questions about you know, what happens in them, but um, if you're looking to, to make that, um, to get that shield of asset protection, uh, certainly um, you, you should look towards the LLC and, and corporation structure. Now, that said, we're talking to a very specific class of, of professionals, um, naturopaths and, and, and naturopathic doctors, um, because you're, you know, when you're a doctor, you're a professionally licensed um, professional here in Washington, you're subject to what's called the Professional Services Corporations Act, which states that, um, which places restrictions on professionals into A, the kind of associations and entities they can form as a business structure. So um, professionals can only uh, uh, associate and, and formulate a business with other like professionals. So naturopaths can certainly be and own and operate a business with other naturopaths. But for example, they can't go into business with an architect and say, we're going to offer architectural services as well, right? They're limited to, to the practice that they, they can engage in. They're also limited to um, as we're talking about those that they can associate with, but they're also limited to the kinds of services they can offer, right? Even if you are engaged with, let's say, uh, you partner up with uh, another naturopath, you still can't go out and offer dental services. You're still restricted to, to doing naturopathic medicine. You, you can't venture off into other fields. Um, so the, the, the law, the, the Professional Services uh, Corporations Act here in Washington um, sets out that you have to set this up as a professional services corporation. And that can be either a, a, a professional services corporation under the corporation banner, or you can set it up as a PLLC, again, a professional services um, limited liability company um, for the uh, offering of professional services. What is the biggest difference high level between a corporation and a PLLC? Right. Good question. So I'd say at the highest level, the biggest difference is really the management and the taxation. Those are the two big things that you should consider. Um, the, as a corporation, you need to have a board of directors and you have to have bylaws. It becomes a little bit more unwieldy and a little bit more um, costly and um, uh, time consuming to manage than an LLC. An LLC, you need to have an operating agreement and you can designate either the members manage it or, the, or you can select a manager or managers to manage the, the limited liability company. And it makes for, I think, uh, the ease of administration is a little bit higher with the LLC. The other thing that you can choose to do with an LLC that you can't with a, a, on an INC and a corporation is the tax. 
um, the tax designation. With an LLC, I think you get maximum flexibility in selecting your, your, your federal tax designation. By that, I mean, with an LLC, you can choose to be what's called a disregarded entity in which your taxes flow directly through to your 1040s, their, their personal income, um, it's self-employed income, and it's reported on Schedule C. And so the profits from your business are considered simply personal income, and they're paid at your marginal tax rate. And that's the instance where it's a disregarded entity. As an LLC, you can also elect to be a, you can, you can elect to be taxed as a corporation, either a C Corp or an S Corp. And so uh, as an S-Corp, what's interesting about a, uh, an S-Corp corporation is that there will be separate taxes for the business entity to pay for the profits. But what's great about it is as long as you pay yourself as an owner um, a, a reasonable salary, and that's obviously um, industry dependent, right? An industry, uh, a reasonable salary for um, someone who uh, sweeps floors is going to be different than a reasonable salary for a lawyer or a, or, or a doctor of, of naturopathic medicine. But certainly, as long as you pay yourself a reasonable salary, you can take distributions out of the corporation without having to pay that self-employment tax. And that self-employment tax can wind up being significant. Um, Self-employment taxes is paid, uh, if, if you're unaware, uh, when you're an employee, you're paying, um, uh, your employer pays and takes out of your paycheck self-employment taxes. That's the FICA, that's the Medicaid, that's the Medicare, and it winds up being a total of 15.3%. Half of it is paid by the employer and half of it is paid by the employee. And that's why, you know, when you have a salary or, or an hourly wage, the check that you get at the end of the day isn't necessarily exactly reflective of, of the exact amount of hours multiplied by your wage rate. Um, there are taxes that are taken out. So what's, what's um, what, what, what are the benefits of selecting an S corporation is that you can take these distributions out of the corporation, um, your, your owner's distribution, your owner's draw, and that you do not have to pay self-employment tax on. It's a pure distribution. So you can wind up saving 15.3% on that distribution every time that you take it out. So that's, I think, a really great uh, benefit of having an S-Corp. And again, the LLC lends itself to that election. You can also elect to be a C-Corp. Um, if you're a corporation, you can select to be an S-Corp, as we talked about, or a C-Corp. Um, but what, um, what a C-Corp is, I think I've talked about the S-Corp, the C-Corp, what is unique about the C-Corp is what we call double taxation, meaning the business as a separate entity, its profits are taxed. And then again, anything that gets remitted out from the business in the form of dividends or profits is taxed again. And so you have that double taxation as a C corporation. And um, certainly there are benefits for a C corporation in terms of its ability to add investors and stockholders and shareholders um, that are not present uh, with an LLC or a C uh, or an S corp. Um, an S corp limits the kinds of of shareholders that you can have. It limits the number of shareholders that you can have. And it also limits um, certain types of entities just by law are precluded from operating as an S-Corp. Um, but um, certainly there's, um, if you're not looking to bring in a whole lot of investors, um, either institutional or otherwise, I think S-Corps have a number of benefits like we talked about where they're not double taxed. You can still take some money out 
um, as an owner's draw or owner's distribution, and uh, you still have uh, the flexibility of managing it as an LLC without the um, extra steps and extra administrative overhang of operating a, a corporation. Gotcha. So you you started to talk about, uh, or you brought up inside of the law around how another naturopath can join another naturopath's practice, um, and legally they can do that because they're practicing naturopathic uh, medicine. A lot, a lot of times a doctor will join another doctor's practice. What should that doctor, if you're about to join a practice, what should that doctor be thinking about in terms of issues that could uh, come, come from that, like liability concerns possibly? Sure. And that's a great question. Um, you know, obviously there's the business concerns of, you know, is this practice making money? Is it going, you know, is the revenue stream steady? Are, you know, are, you know, are our costs being controlled? What sort of, do I have to make some sort of capital contribution, right? There's, there's the business and then there's the kind of liability and legal questions. And I'll obviously let you focus on business and uh, I'll, I'll speak into the, the liability. So what I like to, to frame this as is, you know, we all, I think everyone has a pretty good sense of the fact that, you know, as a practitioner, you're, you're liable for malpractice and for obviously, um, you know, for operating correctly and for following all the laws. Um, but one of the things I think a lot of um, a lot of a lot of uh, professionals joining a practice don't think about is what we like to call the four D's, um, and they are death, disinterest, disability, and um, divorce or dissolution in this case. Um, our state calls it a dissolution of marriage. Um, but these things can radically affect what's going to happen in your business and in the practice if they're not properly planned for. So, you know, obviously their impact is going to differ based on the business structure. So, uh, you know, if this is simply just a partnership, then, um, you know, the effect that a, a death or a divorce has on a partner is going to be a little different than it has on an LLC. But you know, let's let's take them through, I guess, one at a time, and kind of talk through some of these scenarios so that people can understand uh, and professionals can understand kind of the risk. Um, if you're in a partnership and it doesn't have a partnership agreement, then you're just in again the default position is in general partnership, and um, you know that partnership can be dissolved um, and, and terminated and wound up within 90 days. Um, by the remaining partner or partners. So if you uh, join a partnership of, let's say, four naturopathic doctors and all of a sudden one passes away, the other two may decide or the other three may decide, hey, you know what, we don't want to do this without, you know, so-and-so, let's wind this up and let's shut it down. And so a practice you just joined could be wound up within 90 days if, if something like this happens. Um, if you're joining an LLC, um, and it doesn't have an operating agreement, then uh, things get a little complicated. But um, if it's member managed, then the person's fiduciary duties end and um, the deceased um, the deceased members representatives um, may exercise the rights of a transferee. And without getting into too much legal jargon, as we're trying to keep this high level, it's just to say that you now, um, you know, the, the, the people that you expected to be as part of the, the LLC might not be there. You might be paying out distributions to heirs that um, may 
apply for membership and become members that you weren't expecting. Uh, they may simply just take distributions, um, but certainly you, you certainly have a decrease in your ability to do capital calls and capital contributions because members aren't there and um, you know, it might trigger a, a winding up event. Um, if, uh, you know, if, if uh, it, it, sorry, um, how you, you know, what you can do to avoid these outcomes, I, I think the best practice is to either have an LLC that has an operating agreement and kind of think through these scenarios and do things like have buy-sell agreements. If you're in a partnership, um, seriously consider whether you want to stay as a partnership or maybe um, change into another entity um, that might afford more protections. Uh, and if you want to stay as a partnership, then definitely have a, a partnership agreement that, again, um, allocates and thinks through this this potential scenario. Yeah, in our experience, working with uh, a practice that has multiple partners or, or multiple owners, right? The most of the time, I I've actually yet to meet someone that if something happens to one of the partners and that partner is also married, their spouse could then become owner or partner inside of that practice. And most of the time you you joined up together because one naturopath has a certain area of expertise and another naturopath might have another area of expertise. The spouse that comes on board, if something happens to one of them, you no longer want to be partners with that person's spouse. And so Right, thinking through that is a horrible conversation to think through, but it's extremely important because naturopaths, like you're building your life's work, right? This practice is your baby. And so you have to really consider what language, what's, so in, what's important around the four Ds as you mentioned. More yes, and also the funding mechanism if something like that occurred because Believe me, I don't like I'm not going to go into horror stories, but there are horrible, horrible stories around how one partner screwed over another partner, maybe not on purpose, but it just so happened to end up that way because the funding mechanism was not there. Yeah, I think that's that's such an incredibly accurate and and impression point is that you know part of addressing and planning and thinking this through is having a funding mechanism to replace or buy out the the partner that passes away, um, and I think that's something that um, you know as again from a high level that's something that um, is a is a good solution to have some sort of pre-selected funding mechanism and also to have some pre-selected valuation mechanism as well so yes. that again if one partner passes away or becomes disabled or becomes disinterested and says look I'm just I'm looking to retire now um, you know I just hit a point in my career where I'm not looking to you know be in the office you know, 45 hours a week, see patients, deal with insurance billing and all the headaches. Um, they, they, they just want out. And certainly these, these mechanisms provide a, a methodology for exit. They provide a methodology for valuating, for valuing what that share of ownership should be, because certainly you don't want to just say, okay, fine, we'll buy you out. Well, what's it worth? Right. Is, is it pre-selected at the time that the, that the entity is founded and we say look we want to lock you in at this valuation because we want to discourage these sorts of, of disinterest um, or some sort of voluntary separation or do we want to have some sort of floating evaluation 
who's going to, you know, who's going to reach that? Is it going to be a CPA? Is it going to be a business evaluator? Do we have any assets? Um, you know, for example, if you own the building that you're you're operating, that your office is operating in, certainly um, you'll need evaluation for that business, for that physical structure, and for that for that uh, real property because you own the business owns not just the revenue stream and the client list and the computers, but it also owns in this case now the actual land and and property that that the business is located upon. So thinking these things through, I think, is really critical. And um, yeah, it might be unpleasant to, to have to start that conversation, but it really protects everyone because, you know, the worst thing is to have a sort of messy fight about what's going to happen with um, with people that you obviously intended to do business with and work together and, and build something for the future. And now now you're fighting to tear it apart. <laughs> There's a lot in this conversation around operating agreement and buy-sell, so we'll probably have a whole other episode on that. But, you know, we're talking about different liabilities or different concerns that, that can occur. Let, let's pivot back to maybe the single uh, owner-operated type of practice. Sure. In your experience, what is their biggest liability that either maybe they're aware of or maybe that they're not aware of? Right. Um you know, I'd say it's probably the fact that they don't understand if they're a sole operator, they're a sole proprietor, and they haven't gone through some sort of entity formation process, that they are personally on the hook for any liabilities created by the business. And so how might those liabilities move over to you? Well, first, if you have some sort of loan or some line of credit for the business as a sole proprietor, there is no distinction. And so, you know, you borrowed $20,000 to buy some new equipment. Um, guess what? That $20,000 is owed by you personally, not just the business. So if the business, you know, fails and you close up shop and say, look, I'm, I'm going to pursue, you know, I'm going to, I want to move to another uh, part of the state and try my luck in another part of the state, that debt's going to follow you there. It's not going to simply go away. It doesn't close down with the business. Um, likewise, if you have some sort of, um, you know, some sort of obligation in terms of a, a lawsuit, um, that will follow you and it doesn't go away. You can't, you can't uh, uh, separate or shield, again, your personal liability from the liability of the business. And, um, you know, I, I just think that's something that, that unfortunately a lot of sole proprietors are unaware of. The other thing that I think sole proprietors may be not taking into account is what, what's going to be left after you retire, shut down kind of the four Ds that we talk about, what's going to be left if you decide to shut down or walk away or, 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 or retire and shut down the doors, or again, you become disabled and simply can't operate the business. The business that you invested your time and money buying equipment, potential inventory, investing in marketing, all of that goes away. It can't produce any income if you're not there. Whereas if you have an LLC or you have um, a corporation and there are partners, the entity itself has value and contains value. And at the very least, you can you know, sell it off as a distinct entity and potentially still get a revenue stream. Yeah. And in the naturopathic, you know, Alex and I had an episode on this not too long ago around, you know, when you start a practice, you got to think with the end in mind. And sometimes that can change and morph over time. But too often naturopaths uh, practice, it's very hard for them to sell sometimes because if, it, if it's only them, 
if they're the only doctor, well, if they've got the relationship with the patients. It's it's hard to sell the practice. And so we have a conversation around, okay, what is it you're building? It's not that that's a bad thing. Just know that no. up front and know that you need to have a retirement plan outside of the practice so you can live the life that you want to live once you quote unquote retire, whatever that definition is nowadays. And then transitioning that to, right, if, if you want that practice to be sellable and be sellable at the highest amount, or some version of that, so maybe you don't have to work as much, that normally requires some other doctor inside of the practice that can do what you were doing. And so a lot of NDs are hiring, you know, they hire interns and they hire, um, uh, you know, graduating doctors, hopefully to groom them to be another doctor in the practice so that they can get some flexibility and possibly maybe even sell it to them, some sort of, you know, purchase there. And so, we're having conversations with doctors around, you know, possibly NDAs or different things that they're training their doctors on. And, you know, ND NDAs, from my understanding in the legal world, aren't, they don't hold up as easily nowadays, or maybe they do. I guess my question to you is, in your experience, how do the NDAs uh, hold up nowadays? Sure. So, great question. The NDAs, uh, the, let's just uh, let's let's back off from a little bit of the jargon and say non-disclosure agreement. That's what NDA stands for. Uh, non-disclosure agreement, just broadly, is an agreement which says, "Hey, I'm going to show you some information that's considered confidential or private, and I don't want you to share that with other people or use it for your for your benefit outside of this business or outside of these, you know, selected operational um, concerns." Um, the NDAs, uh, the way we usually work with them and what we've seen and, and what I've seen in practice is that they are a very limited tool. And the, the ways that we counsel our clients to use them is in a capacity to simply limit the disclosure and not really try and conceive of what the damage is going to be. So without getting too much into legalese, what we try and do is, is, is say that, um, that any sort of sharing of this private information, we enumerate what that private information is, and we go very specifically into great detail about things like consumer lists, um, you know, uh, operating manuals, trade secrets, you know, practices, sales techniques, you know, obviously I don't want to fill up your podcast just simply listing things. So those sorts of things are going to be protectable information. And what we would do is, is say that the, um, the remedy, what we would have, what we would ask the court to do is simply give what's called an injunction um, to tell the person who might be out there sharing this information to stop doing that because the other way is to try and collect some sort of money you know hey this person shared our private sales technique and we've now lost x amount of dollars great how do you document what you've actually lost um, due to their disclosure it's really difficult and it's really intangible in so many ways so we just um, you know we advise the clients to a understand that these ndas are limited tools and that your best your best practice is to simply look through uh, and create a process whereby you're restricting the flow of information and you're making it so that it's hard to obtain the most private and most protected information, you know, your trade secrets, your customer list. You don't want that to be on a computer that someone can just simply, you know, download an Excel spreadsheet and walk away the next day, you know, that's really going to be your best bet because great trying to find that person, especially if they leave state, um, 
and, and or move to the other side of the state, it's going to be hard to find them and hard to enforce it. So in, in this case, we, we generally say an ounce of, 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 of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So that, that kind of takes us to, you know, we're, we're talking about hiring this, possibly another doctor in the practice, maybe several doctors, and retention can be an issue. Uh, even if they don't take any any information with them, they still might want to start their own practice. Or what this, there's obviously a ton of reasons why someone would leave. You know, some doctors or some owners can, uh, you know, have retention bonuses, maybe draft a document as to how to retain them. You know, in your experience, it, are, outside of bonuses and maybe some documentation, what, what else can a doctor do to have better retention in their practice so that they can set themselves up for success now and in the future? Certainly, it's a great question. Um, what we've seen in terms of, of helping practitioners uh, and practices have success is considering some more than just a bonus, but considering doing something that ties that practitioner's future to the, the practice, but in a good way, aligning incentives. So perhaps uh, not just bonuses, but perhaps if you're open to it, um, uh, some sort of way that the practitioner can earn some element of equity in the business so that their long-term future is tied to the long-term success of the business. You can also try and go the other way, which is to have things like um, non-competition agreements. Um, I would say those are very limited uh, for a couple of reasons. In 2019, the Washington legislature passed a, a new law regarding that. It set the minimum salary requirements for a non-competition agreement to even be applicable to $150,000 a year. And then on top of that, there's a whole other set of requirements. So it's really going to be difficult to even fall under the category of being subject to a non-competition agreement. And again, that's more of a, a, you know, kind of, if you think about like human motivation in terms of carrot and stick, that's more of the stick. We tend to, you know, find that carrots are more successful, and so yeah. we certainly urge, urge, um, you know, uh, owners as they're bringing in new practitioners and thinking about retaining successful and 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 great practitioners in their practice by doing things like, you know, not just one-time bonuses or or you know quarterly performance bonuses, but thinking about how um, how to transition and how to convey potentially parts of, you know, uh, pieces of equity um, or elements of equity over to that practitioner to long-term tie them into the practice and make their goals be the same as your goals. And it certainly, it helps again with, as we were talking about earlier in this conversation, you know, we touched about elements of succession planning. You know, what, what are you going to do when you want to step away from the business? Certainly that you're starting to build you know, A, a practice that is sellable, if that's something that you want to do, or B, a practice that can continue on and perhaps buy you out or provide you a consistent stream of income as you either buy out or as you reduce your your day-to-day -day, um, uh, your, your day -day activities in the business. Yeah, you're, I mean, you bring up a good point, carrot versus stick. Most people, especially in the naturopathic community, when you can offer them equity and like help you grow the business, that's still going to work mostly, most of the time, a lot better than a threat of some sort of competition agreement. So um, that's a huge, huge aspect. And in the naturopathic community, they definitely would rather have, have growth and, and equity um, than anything else. So, 
Um, thank you for that, Michael. I, I so appreciate your time. There's, uh, we could probably sit here for the next three hours and, and continue this conversation. Um, I think we might have to have a couple more episodes as this is uh, stemming some more ideas in my head. Um, but I do want to uh, tell the listeners, if they have questions, if they want to reach out to you for some legal advice, how would they reach out to you? Certainly. Well, thank you. I'd, I'd appreciate it. Anyone who wants to speak with me, there's a couple ways to get in touch with us. Um, the, probably the easiest way is to just go to our website. Um, it's www.jenny.com. And uh, from there, you can fill out a contact form and get in contact with us. You can also email us or ring our office. Our office number is area code 206 859 5098 and we do have offices both in the Seattle and Bellevue area to try and reach uh, as many uh, uh, potential clients as possible. So I, I would say those would probably be the two best ways, phone or visit our website and you can actually contact us, uh, set an appointment, you can even schedule an appointment online with us and we can uh, talk with you and try and understand what your goals are and, and discuss how we can help you reach those goals. Awesome. Well, Michael, thanks again for being on the show. For you listeners, uh, make sure you uh, share this. If you got any value out of it, make sure to head to holistic-finance.com. You can feel free to fill out a, a question there if you've got other questions for Michael or myself, or as, if you have any ideas for us that you want to talk about on the podcast, feel free to reach out to us that way. We hope this episode was valuable for you. And as always, everyone, make it a great day. This podcast is for informational purposes only and it's not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice. Although the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Quantified Financial Partners and opinions stated are their own. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. All investments and investment strategies contain risk and may lose value. Brian and Alex are registered representatives and financial advisors of Park Avenue Securities, LLC. OSJ.